You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Drew Leiter here, inviting you to join Cletus Jacobs and I every week as we dive deeper into the dawn of DC. We review DC Comics, television, movies, and more. We're excited to finish the final season of Doom Patrol, return to Sweet Tooth for its second season, and check out the Netflix series Bodies. Get all your DC news on the Earth Station DCU podcast, part of the ESO Network. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Monster Attack, the podcast dedicated to old monster movies. We are going sci-fi this week, and as you've noticed from the graphic of the episode, we are talking about Star Trek. But I'm picking it out of order this time. Instead of talking about the first Star Trek feature film, we're talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Now, this is a film that normally I probably would have done an episode on two years ago uh, because it celebrated its 40th anniversary in 2022. But uh, as always, I've got a story attached to this one and uh, the reason why we're doing it this week. This film was released in June of 1982. Now, something that happened just a few months ago here in Atlanta at the Monsterama Convention is what led to uh, me wanting to do this episode today. And uh, so let's, you know, in in typical Jim fashion, let's uh, take a few minutes to tell you about that story. It centers around the Monsterama Convention that occurred here in October, uh, around Halloween weekend. And it uh, it featured a couple of uh, special guests that had a lot to do with Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Uh, Two of them were uh, crew members of uh, Khan's crew, Laura Banks and Tim Culberson, uh, who were guests at the show. But the headliner, and the one that I I wanted to meet uh, more than anyone else out of all of the guests uh, that were appearing out of the the Star Trek uh, franchise, was director Nick Meyer. First was introduced to Nicholas Meyer as a fan from this movie. That's the first time his, his name shows up, and it's the first involvement he had with any Star Trek uh, episodes or uh, any uh, Star Trek films. He would go on to also direct Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Uh, but also he was involved in writing uh, some of the other uh, Star Trek films as well. So he was. I was very, very fascinated with uh, some of the work that he did on 2 and 6. Now, while I was at Monsterama, I also bought Nick Meyer's book, The View from the Bridge, which I just finished reading a couple of days ago. And I guess that's the thing that sort of fired me up. His book, by the way, I'm not a shill for the book, but this it is a really good book if you are a Star Trek fan or a fan of Nicholas Meyer. Uh, this is a must-have book. Uh, incredible story of his life, how he got into directing, how he got into writing. He's actually done a little acting as well, but uh, he will always be known now 
I think mainly for the Star Trek work he did and another film that we will probably do here on Monster Attack called Time After Time, an absolutely brilliant film that I, I think is one of the better time travel films that was ever made. Uh, but enough on that. We'll get to that one somewhere down the road when we have a chance to talk about it. The book really fired me up. It it, it fired me up t- to the point that I had not seen The Wrath of Khan in a couple of years. And I always enjoyed that film. I'll tell you that right out of the blocks. I have a feeling that most of you listening to this uh, podcast have probably seen this film as well. But I will put up my warning uh, that in talking about this film... Uh, I'll end up spoiling everything about it. I I really doubt there's too many people out there that don't know this storyline of this film. And we're going to be spoiling it, just talking about how it came into production. So I'm I'm going to let you know, I really, really like this film. Now, there's a lot of people out there who are are Star Trek fans, and and non-Star Trek fans as well, who feel like among all of the uh, films in the franchise that the even-numbered films were better than the odd-numbered films. Well, the even-numbered films are among some of the best ones that, that I saw in this, we'll say in the, the original series franchise. But uh, I think they all have something to like. Uh, there's only one in the whole franchise that when we do it down the road, and we'll do all of the Star Trek films down the road, uh, that I thought just didn't work on any levels. But we'll keep you guessing on that one. Some of you will probably already know which one I mean. But this one's coming on the heels of Star Trek, the motion picture. Star Trek, very quickly, just a quick little history lesson. Star Trek, the motion picture came out in 1979. Uh, I was very, very excited about that film coming out, as as a lot of Star Trekkers were. I was an original Star Trekker from the 60s. Uh, my dad and mom, once again, got me into Star Trek. Uh, I was involved with all kinds of things going on back in 1966 when uh, when the show first came out. Uh, I had a job as a paper boy. Uh, I, I was involved in a lot of extracurricular activities and that sort of thing. And the show came on a Thursday night. Uh, I didn't see the first episode, which was The Salt Vampire. And I remember my mom and dad the next morning saying, you got to really see this show. There's this show called Star Trek that is really, really good. And they were so taken by it that after that, I made sure I cleared off uh, Thursday nights and, uh, and watched it with them and just became a huge, huge fan of the show. And then it sort of, you know, it got canceled very quickly in 1969. Uh, a lot of us were very upset with that. But then it made a resurgence in syndication. And that's where probably the majority of Star Trek fans were born. Really, really born. Other than than, than us hardcore uh, original Trekkers. And it became a phenomenon uh, for, for syndicated television. Uh, I remember in college, guys that I knew that, that sort of kidded me about being a monster kid and that sort of thing. Love Star Trek, and it would come on about four o'clock every afternoon, and everybody was glued to the to the sets uh, in the in the dorm watching Star Trek. So there was talk of a motion picture coming back around, and it took some doing. It took ten years to get the Star Trek, the first Star Trek motion picture uh, launched. And when we talk about that show, Mark and I are going to be talking about Star Trek the motion picture later on this season. So I'm not going to say a whole lot now. I don't want to ruin that show for you. 
Well, I'll just say that that it was it was very exciting. I had moved back to Chapel Hill at this time. Uh, a couple of friends uh, that I worked with, that I you know I had a job. I was uh, uh, back in school again, and all of that when the show when the uh, movie came out. And we were all truckers. We were real excited about going to see it. And I remember, uh, I'm just going to say, that walking out of the theater, we felt very satisfied. Now, a lot of people criticized Star Trek The Motion Picture. And it was a film that had problems. So at the time, we weren't sure if there was going to be a, a sequel or not. Because there was a lot of negativity surrounding the first film. It was just so much fun to see all of the cast to get get together, and uh, it, it was just it was an exciting night. I was in the in the big theater in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, their main theater. Uh, all of the people in the in the audience were were Trek fans, and uh, we just had a good old time through the whole thing. So you know the negativity came from from other circles later on. But the movie made a lot of money. Now, it cost a ton of money. At the time, it was one of the most expensive films ever made. $44 million. And so Paramount wasn't too excited about making another film until they discovered how much money they made and Star Trek The Motion Picture made a ton of money. ton of money. So it was sort of like, well, you know, we really have to make another one. Now, going into Star Trek II, the which it was just simply called Star Trek II. They didn't know exactly what the storyline was going to be. Gene Roddenberry had come up with a uh, with a script that involved a, a time travel element, uh, a crew going back, uh, the assassination of JFK, uh, a number of different things, and the uh, powers that be at Paramount put on the brakes, stopped him, and said, "Look, here's the deal. We're going to kick you upstairs." You're going to be an executive consultant on these Star Trek films. But that's it. And Gene Roddenberry was blamed on the cost overruns and, and, and sort of the problems that Star Trek The Motion Picture had. There were stories going out that there were rewrites, you know, on the hour during that. And uh, just his involvement with it was, was very, very heavy. And so, look, and I don't know. I don't know the truth behind this. Um, it's just uh, th- those are the stories that are coming out from from a lot of the production people from Paramount, and and from some of the people involved in Star Trek: The Motion Picture. But you know, I can imagine this was his baby. Star Trek was his creation, and uh, sometimes a person just can't walk away, and, and uh, which is something that they needed for him to do on that film. So Roddenberry now is uh, just simply a consultant. But basically, they're just trying to keep him out of the procedure. And Harv Bennett is hired as the new producer. And Harv Bennett would become known for his Star Trek work from here on out. He would produce all of the remaining films with the uh, the original cast and really become the, the, the face and the voice of the franchise. And he's the one who hired Nicholas Meyer, and so it took some going, you know, going around and around and around to uh, to come up with the motion picture that we're going to talk about tonight. But basically, the story goes that Nick, uh, when he was being interviewed to uh, to direct the film, said that I could probably make four of those Star Trek films from the uh, from the budget we had because the producers and the and the powers that be said, hey, you know, that was the big problem. 
were going to have to slash the budget, and they did. This film was only shot for $12 million. So if you didn't know that uh, all these years, think back on this film. Go back and watch it again. It's amazing what they did for that. They had to cut some corners, and, uh, and you know, it doesn't really show on the screen. It does a heck of a job on this. So to make a long story short, what they come up with is a story. Uh, Harv Bennett goes and he watches all of the Star Trek episodes, all three seasons. And out of that, he picks one. He says, this would make a good tie-in for Star Trek II. And it was the episode starring Ricardo Montalban called The Space Seed, where Montalban played Khan. Now, folks, i got to admit, out of all of the original series episodes, Khan was a good villain. He really was. He was one of my favorites. And as I honestly look back on the original series, I would have to say he was probably the best one out there. Harv Bennett made a good choice. So now he and, and, and Nicholas Meyer work on uh, getting getting a script together that involves Khan. They hire a guy by the name of Jack Sowards, screenwriter. He wrote the final screenplay for The Wrath of Khan. He also, also wrote uh, for The Next Generation, uh, the episode, if you remember, where Silence has lease. And he created the Kobayashi Maru scenario, which is principal in this episode because that's where the film opens up. And we'll talk about that when we get into a little more of the timeline. So they like the script. Meyer likes the script. Everybody seemed to approve of it. But now it was to get the cast together. Now, getting the different cast members back to play their roles in Star Trek II is sort of legendary. I mean, Kirk, no problem. Shatner was very protective of his character and uh you know and he had he had sort of approval of script approval as well had to make a few little tweaks and then he really really liked the way the script came out initially he hated it and they just had to they had to go in and, and do do a little tweaking on it nothing nothing you know particular and nicholas meyer in his book talks about how he, he enjoyed working with shatner and he, he didn't want to give anyone the impression that shatner was like a prima donna he was just very very protective of the Jim Kirk character, and understandably so. And so, uh, one of the uh, one of the things he raised with Nicholas Meyer about about the script that he didn't like was a very minor thing. Uh, Meyer made the change, and all of a sudden, Shatner's on board. Now, getting Ricardo Montalban was going to be a little tricky because, if you recall, at this time he has got a very successful television show going on called Fantasy Island. And Ricardo wasn't wasn't sure if uh, if if he was going to be able to uh, to separate those characters apart, but he sat down and watched the Space Seed episode over and over again, and he says uh, in some of his memoirs that uh, about the third or fourth time through, old Khan kicked in, and so yeah, he was ready to go. So they got him. So now they, they got him. They've got him going. Now, the one fun thing about the Monsterama convention was there were two people, Laura Banks and Tim Culberson, who served as a crew as crew members for Khan. Uh, Laura served as his navigator. She had quite a prominent role in there, even though these were uncredited roles. And Tim played, uh, you know, one of his, as he called it, one of his henchmen or whatever. Uh, Tim would be seen in a lot of other films as well. 
as well as another Star Trek film. So it was fun to meet them as well to talk about some folks who were actually on set. But let's go to Leonard Nimoy now. Nimoy, you know, had written this, written the book, I Am Not Spock. Seemed like he was trying to separate himself from Spock. He had uh, he'd been on the television show Mission Impossible for a couple of years. Uh, and been doing uh, other films and television work as well. And after, the, uh, after appearing in Star Trek The Motion Picture, uh, he had not intended to have a role in the sequel. Uh, it, it was not in, you know, his purpose. Uh, of course, that one was left, uh, you know, we didn't know where, what, what Spock was going to do at the end of motion picture. Uh, you know, he, he had begun in that picture doing the Colinar and then gave that up because he felt there was a, a presence he had to address and all that. We, we, we know that story. Uh, and that was just sort of his character was just sort of left hanging at the end of the first one. But got with Nick Meyer and he, and he talked him into reprising the role promising that he would have a death scene. Because with all the negativity surrounding Star Trek The Motion Picture, a lot of the cast and crew felt this might be the last one, you know. And if they're going to go out, Nemo thought, let's go out in a blaze of glory. So he says, okay, yeah, I'll do it again. I'll do it again for that reason. Now, they, they, they had to alter the script a little bit. At first, his, his death was put in the beginning of the show, uh, and then, uh, then it was finally moved to, to the ultimate climax at the end of the Wrath of Khan. Yeah, there's the big spoiler. Yep, Spock gets killed in the Wrath of Khan. DeForest Kelly, he was uh, not real satisfied with an early version of the script and uh, thought, well, maybe, maybe I'm going to sit this one out. But he discovered that uh, in, a, in a retooled script, he spoke some of the lighter, some of the lighter lines, and thought, okay, yeah, you know, we need to bring a lighter side to this because this is going to be a very dramatic script. And it was. A very dramatic story, so he, he signed on board. James Doohan was, was on board, so he reprised Scotty. George Takei came back on as Sulu. Walter Cunning, who, uh, who plays Chekhov. And a lot of people say, wait a minute, Chekhov wasn't in Space Seed. So how could he be in there, and uh, you know, w- without that being uh, you know being a problem? Because when when Spacey ep- the episode uh, aired, uh, Walter had not joined the cast as as Chekhov. Chekhov was introduced to the cast later, so they there's sort of a backstory involved with this because in the script, Khan recognizes Chekhov, and uh, you know if you remember, it's a classic scene where you know uh, Khan says, "I never forget a face." So they had to figure that one out. So there was a little a little storyline they wrote that uh, Chekhov was uh, working the night crew, uh, and it was there, but we never saw him in the space scene. <laughs> so he signs on. Uh, uh, Nichelle Nichols signs back on with the Uhura. Looking forward to that, and some of the newer people that we're going to see now. And here is the big spoil. Another big big spoiler that they introduced into the script. And I will say, folks, Ron Berry wasn't real crazy about this script. But the powers that be at Paramount said, no, we are going to do this. We're not going to go through what we went through with Star Trek, the motion picture, and all the overruns and the delays and that sort of thing. And uh, so we're going to be handling this. B.B. Besh is hired on as a character by the name of Carol Marcus. 
And she's, she's a lead scientist working on this mysterious project called Genesis. And we'll talk a little more about what Genesis is as we get into the storyline. But we also find out that Carol Marcus was a love interest of James Kirk. And they had a son that nobody knew about. And that was kept a big secret. And we were going to find out in, in the show that uh, Kirk has a son. So that's one of the big, big shockers early on in this movie. Bibi would go on to, uh, to uh, also be one of the co-stars in a film that Nicholas Meyer would be very well known for, the, uh, the nuclear holocaust film, The Day After. And uh, she'd play uh, one of the principal roles in that as well. And I'd see her show. I think I, sh- I remember seeing her uh, in a couple of other films here and there, a couple of horror films and sci-fis. And uh, so, you know, just a, just a very, very good, competent actress. And uh, one that, you know, she she was welcome. She was welcome. She, uh, she would appear also in um, uh, Steel Magnolias later on and had quite a career. And then Merrick Buttrick would play the son. He would play Kirk's son, David Marcus, who was also also a scientist that working on this Genesis project with his mother. And we would find out uh, through the story that uh, you know when, when, when she and Kirk had, had, had this child out of wedlock, that she wanted the child. And that she and Kirk came to agreement that he would, he would not have any part in David's life. She didn't want him, as, as she says, as they uh, go back and, and, and tell us in the movie, didn't want him going around, you know, jumping around the stars with his father, you know, getting in and out of trouble. I wanted him in my world as a scientist, as an intellectual, and uh, Kirk agreed to that. In fact, he has a, a classic line, one of the more poignant lines in the movie where he meets David for the first time, and uh, and he and Carol are alone, and he goes, I tried to do what you wanted. I stayed away. So that sets the table for what's going on here. And again, a couple of the big shockers that, that we're going to be seeing in this film. So the, these are your main characters. Now, someone else we're going to see in the film, Paul Winfield, who uh, developed quite a, quite a reputation for the film Sounders, you might remember. Nicholas Meyer really wanted to work with him. He plays a captain of another ship, the Reliant, and this is a ship that Chekhov is serving on as well. And they're going to be the first people that uh, that are going to meet up with Khan. So, Paul Winfield, Nick Meyer said in his book, he wanted to bring him in because he thought he would add, uh, you know, lend, lend some gravity to the situation. The big thing that Meyer didn't want to have happened in the Wrath of Khan was was it to be considered corny or passe? Uh, he wanted this to be a really, really dramatic script and one that would totally engage uh, the audience. And it did, folks. I got to tell you, it really, really did. Kirstie Alley were introduced as uh, as a Vulcan who was Spock's protege because at this time Spock. Is a uh, is a commander who's training uh, Starfleet uh, kids, and the Enterprise is now being used as a training vehicle. And Spock has taken uh, Kirstie Alley or Kirstie Alley's character Savick on as his protege. Very very proud of her accomplishments in the academy, 
and she's a by the book Vulcan. And they felt, you know, they felt let's put a let's put another Vulcan in a situation as a first officer in training. And it was, you know, a character that we totally, totally accepted. Now, one other person that we're going to see is going to be a familiar face in here, and that is Khan's. Well, we're led to believe that it may have been his son, and that's Judson Scott playing Joaquin. And uh, his the reason that uh, we don't know much about Judson Scott when the film comes out is because he doesn't get a credit line. And that didn't have anything to do other than the fact that his lawyer, or not his lawyer, but his agent, demanded that Judson Scott get top billing along with all the others. Paramount said no. So for some reason, and nobody to this day understands why that happened, even Nicholas Meyer in his book addresses this, uh, says he, he couldn't figure out why Scott waived, waived uh, billing. So he doesn't get a billing in this. Of course, Scott believed that he would appear in the end credits, but no, when he waived billing, he, he was totally uncredited character, and he has a major role in this. But now I may be wrong on this, but all the years that I've watched this, I've always got the impression that his character, Joaquin, might have been Khan's son. If not, he was a very, very close protege because he gets killed in the uh, in the movie as, as well as Spock. And Khan, Khan gets killed too. Yeah, let's just spoil it all. So now Meyer's got, uh, you know, he's got quite quite a, quite a cast together of veterans and, and young folks. Uh, of course, Kirstie Alley, she's making her debut in this. Uh, this is her very first uh, motion picture. And so the film opens up uh, allegedly on the, uh, on the, uh, Enterprise deck, on, on, you know, on the bridge, and it appears Kirstie Alley is in in the uh, in the captain's chair, and this is where we're introduced to the Kobayashi Maru scenario, and it's the no win scenario, and uh, we're all, I remember sitting there, you know, I was excited about seeing, you know, wanting to see another Star Trek film, and I think the anticipation, and I saw it opening night in 1982, the anticipation surrounding this film was just amazing. And all I knew about the film, and anyone who's a Star Trekker or a fan of, of the motion pictures will know what I'm going to talk about, was the Today Show, the morning of the public release. You know, they had gone, all of the, uh, all of the members of the Today Show had gone to see the film the night before in the premiere that they held for the press and everybody. They didn't talk about much of the film, you know, they, they, they were told, don't. Again, I'll go into any detail about the movie. They didn't want to spoil the thing about Spock's death or any of that. But Jane Pauley, when they asked her, she just simply said, yeah, you know, I liked it. It was fun. It was a big TV show. So that got, that got me a little fired up. It was like, okay, you know, the critics and stuff never did understand this stuff. You know, I was a monster kid. They never liked any of the monster movies I liked or the sci-fis or any of that stuff. So I didn't expect to hear, you know, so what I was hearing here was sort of ambivalent. Well, it was okay, you know, it was all right. And then, then her to say, it's just a big TV show. I had to see that for myself. So that night, Friday night, opening night, a lot of anticipation in the audience. And I think that helped the experience as well. We wanted this to be good. You know, from all the negativity... For the, for the past three years that it surrounded the, the Star Trek The Motion Picture. And folks, i got to tell you, I, I was never negative about that film. I thought maybe it was a little long, 
But when it came out on cable, I watched it a lot. I, I can't tell you how many times I saw Star Trek The Motion Picture over and over again. Had people over to my house to show it to them. The ones that didn't go see it in the theater, but just to show them. You know, because I, I just it, because it was just so much fun to have Star Trek back for a while. So this was exciting. And I would say most of the people in the theater that night were just as excited about seeing this film. So now all of a sudden it looks like, as you know, in the Kobayashi Maru uh, scenario, it's a no-win scenario. And it looks like the Enterprise is getting destroyed. Oh, my God. How can they do that? <laughs> but as it turns out, it's just a training mission. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's like a big video game, I guess you would call it. Because we didn't have those kind of video games back then. But as it turned out, it was just strictly, uh, it was a simulator. <laughs> I was struggling for the word there for a minute, I blanked, folks. Got so excited about this. And Kirk shows up and we find out Kirk is no longer the captain of the Enterprise. James T. Kirk is now an admiral. And he's flying a desk, which adds now even more to this to the dramatic uh, aspects of this movie because as with future star trek motion pictures they will always have an underlying storyline now the storyline in the uh, in the first one was uh, was the relationship uh, between decker and uh, and persis kambata's character this one deals with kirk dealing with getting old and sort of feeling useless now because he uh, He's no longer captain of the Enterprise, and he's feeling it. And all those years we watched William Shatner play James T. Kirk on the on the television show, and then how the storyline developed in, in Star Trek The Motion Picture, where he had a chance to get the Enterprise back. We were all surprised. What do you mean he's flying a desk? You know, when he left, it's, it appeared that he would probably more than likely find a way to get, get a ship, namely the Enterprise. But he's celebrating a birthday, Spock gives him a book. It was the best of times, the worst of times. <laughs> this would be a theme that would run throughout the whole movie. And Kirk would spend an evening alone at, at, in his apartment. He, uh, DeForest Kelly's character, Bones, shows up. He's got a gift for him. It's a pair of, uh, of uh, antique glasses, eyeglasses. Because Kirk, we find out, is allergic to the drug that they use to correct people's vision in the 23rd century. And they have a long talk about, uh, and it's a very poignant scene in there where, where Bones talks to him about, you're just getting old. You know, you're, you're, that's, that's, that's what your problem is. You want to be out there flying in the cosmos like a young guy. Well, the Enterprise is slated on a, on a training mission with this, with these training crew with this training crew with these youngsters that are uh, going through the academy the cadets Shatner's going to be on board he and Bones both are going to be on board as observers and the story goes from there Khan we find out is still alive and well but we go now to the Reliant we see you know Paul Winfield's character Captain Terrell and Chekhov. And they are scouting for a planet for Carol Marcus, for this, for an experiment for this Genesis project, which at the time we don't know what it is, but we just know 
She needs an asteroid or a planet that is devoid of life, basically. You know, and, and you know, Terrell's like, oh, maybe this will be the one. Apparently, they have not had any luck. But their scans show that there's there's one something showing up down there. That Chekhov says, you know, maybe it's just, you know, maybe maybe it's not something that would keep them from using this planet for their experiment. And so they beam down, and it's this oh, rough planet. I mean, it's a storm going on and all of this. But they discover something down there. It looks like something has crashed on the planet, that a ship has crashed. And there's some cargoes, a big cargo type, uh, left over from this crashed ship. And they get inside, they discover that you know there's some food cooking. You know, they realize someone has been there. And Chekhov, to his shock, happens to glance over at... Uh, what is the remnant of a of a seat belt, a safety belt of some sort? And it says on their Botany Bay. Now we all we see that we go, oh my god! Because again, as as, as an audience member, we didn't know what we didn't know anything about the storyline. Everything was kept quiet, even though even you know. But we realize, yeah, this is it. It is Khan. Yep, it's what we thought when last we met Khan. They left him and his crew on SETI Alpha Five to make it on their own be in exile away from everybody else because he was too dangerous. They weren't going to kill him or anything like that. And it was one of the more poignant episodes of uh, Star Trek, of the uh, of the television show. And Cotton and his people show up and we find out, see, they thought they were on SETI Alpha 6. But as it turns out, they were on SETI Alpha 5 all along. SETI Alpha 6 had exploded. It had knocked SETI Alpha 5 into a different orbit and laid waste the planet. Now, Nick Meyer tells a story about Ricardo Montalban has a six-page monologue, and it's a great, great monologue. And folks, i got to tell you, Ricardo Montalban's performance in this film is nothing short of outstanding. You know, Khan could have easily been an over-the-top type character, could have been a cheesy character, could have been campy, could have been... You know, it, it just could have been all wrong, but he plays this brilliantly, and the and the collaboration he has with Nicholas Meyer on this is incredible. And Meyer tells this great story about the first time that Montauban comes in and does this scene. He's got to hit all these marks. He's got 23 marks he's got to hit doing this scene, this monologue. Six pages. He's got it. He's got it down pat, but he plays it. Angry and, and, and fierce, and at the end goes, "How's that?" And Meyer wants something a little different, and he uh, he doesn't want to, you know. He he says, "Okay," he says, uh, "I want to, you know, let's get together for a minute here. Everybody, take ten or whatever. I got to get. I want to get together with Ricardo. We're going to go over. We're going to do some fine tuning." And he tells Montauban about how what makes a character like Khan so dangerous is you never know what he's going to do, because you know he's got a high intelligence. And he says, Montauban gets quiet for a minute. And he goes, oh, you want to direct me? And Myers said, just for an instant, he's not quite sure how he's, you know, what's going to come next. But then Montauban says, that's true. That's great. Because I, nobody ever directs me. And I want to be directed for this. And he totally understands what it is that Meyer wants now. And he goes back and replays the scene perfectly. And now he's gone. Now he's, he says, "I love being directed. 
pick because I never get directed. And so now we see Khan. He's got a hair-trigger temper. We find out that, if you remember from the Space Seed episode, one of the members of the, the crew of the Enterprise falls in love with Khan and leaves with him when he's exiled. Find out later becomes his wife. But she, she dies on the planet along with many of the other exilees, or whatever you would call them, members of his crew, the Space Seed. And so he's got it in for James Kirk. And it's a very poignant scene where they put some uh, what they call SETI eels into the ears of uh, Terrell and Chekhov because it, it forces them to tell him what he wants to know. Where do I find James T. Kirk? You know, where do I find them all? And from here on out, it's, it's, it's a revenge picture. And there's going to be references made to Moby Dick all throughout, you know, as we will find in future Star Trek films. There's always going to be a little underwriting writing theme beneath the storylines. One thing I love about the movies of Star Trek, that they did that. And so there's always going to be references made to Moby Dick throughout all of this. It's part of Khan's character. Which obviously, think about it, Ahab is absolutely obsessed with the white whale who had taken his leg, which leads to his downfall. And the same storyline is going to follow here. As Khan will be so obsessed with killing Kirk and making him suffer like he has suffered, that it will it'll result in his downfall. Because they're able to get, you know, they get control of the Reliant. They strand the crew. On SETI Alpha 5, we find out, and he's off looking for Kirk. Now, this is where we're introduced to the Genesis Project. As it turns out, the Genesis Project is a way that, it's an experiment that Carol and David Marcus came up with to create a, a life-like planet, a planet where there was no life. You could take a, a dead asteroid and shoot this device at it, and it would terraform it. I guess the easiest way to say it, just in, in layman's terms, it would create, create a planet of life. And as we find out later in the movie, you could explode it in, in, in open space and it would create a planet out of, out of the material that's there. Life from lifelessness. And this is the planet that Terrell and uh, Chekhov had said, it's okay, this will work. This is before they discover Khan. So plans are being made to get the Genesis Project experiment going, the, the next phase of it. We find out from Kirk, who's talking to Spock and Bones about it, because they, they don't really know the details of it. And of course, Bones is very upset about it because he says, you're talking Armageddon. What if you, what if you exploded this thing on a planet that already had life? And Spock very coolly says, well, it would uh, destroy that life in favor of its new matrix. And Bones is like, you're talking about Armageddon here. Can we have a power like that? Can you imagine if a power like that got in the wrong hands? And so now we got the story all in place. Well, Khan has his first interchange with Kirk, and ironically in the movie, and it was something that Ricardo Montalban was, well, I won't say was disturbed about, but he, he hated that he and Kirk never had a one-on-one -on -one scene together, and, and, and Shatner would have liked that as well. Shatner at first pr pr uh, had proposed that maybe they have a fight scene. <laughs> He's got to have Kirk with a fight scene. But uh, but Meyer stood, stood firm and said, no, the only time that really they have any interchange 
is uh, talking with each other from ship to ship. Because the Enterprise on its training mission is sent out to investigate some some problem where uh, Carol and David Marcus are at, at their laboratory out in the middle of nowhere. The Enterprise is sent out. It's the only ship nearby, and they, they're upset about something. Uh, someone has said they're going to steal Genesis, uh, and this is, uh, this is Khan now posing with the Reliant, saying that they're coming to pick it up. Nobody knows what's going on. It's so far out in space that... Uh, Starfleet says, yeah, send the Enterprise out, find out what's going on. And they meet the Reliant on the way. And as we all know, the Reliant gets the better of the uh, uh, Enterprise and nearly destroys it. But Kirk manages to pull the fat out of the fire and damage the Reliant in a, uh, in a you know, again, a scheme that, uh, you know, is so typical of Kirk and the old show that he pulls, boy, pulls a, a solution out of the hat. But still, they got a problem because the Enterprise is still very badly damaged. And this is all occurring around a planet that Carol and David Marcus had experimented on with the Genesis device. And we find out everything is under underground, inside the planet is where they made this, uh, where they, they experimented with this device. And the Enterprise is able to hide from... Uh, from the Reliant. So Khan's not sure what happened to the ship, but it's gone, and they have to make their repairs. And be that as it may, Terrell and, and Chekhov, who have these steady uh, eels in their ears, causing them to do things, Terrell ends up killing himself because Khan wants him to kill Kirk. It's all a setup. And Khan now has learned where the Genesis device is. He wants it, and he, he's able to beam it up on board the Reliant. And take off, and the Enterprise, which Khan thought had taken off and left Kirk and the others on the planet where the uh, the Genesis experiment was, actually had been hiding. They had been matching step for step on the opposite side of the planet so that Khan couldn't uh, find that they were there. So the Enterprise, now somewhat repaired, beams everybody aboard to try to deal with the situation. Well, Khan discovers the Enterprise. It was a big chase scene, and the one the one thing that, that got criticism about this movie, and, and I, I didn't I couldn't be critical of it. I, I think it was very dramatic, uh, a very good dramatic vehicle. Nicholas Meyer approached the these battle sequences with the Enterprise and the Reliant, very similar to what you would see in World War II movies, with two battleships battling it out. Or you know, it, it, you know, a classic uh, a Mariner type film, where you would have, you know, big ships battling it out. That's that's how he foresaw uh, doing this. You know, and a lot of people say, well, you know, but these 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 spaceships would be flying around, you know, almost at the speed of light and all that. But it was a good dramatic vehicle, and and I really loved the way the, uh, you know, the the two spaceships, you know, were playing cat and mouse with each other trying to uh, trying to uh, get the edge on one another. And what Kirk uh, decides to do is to hide out there's a nearby nebula. He knows if they go into the nebula that the uh, you know the scanners will be down. you won't be able to use shields, you know, and it evens the playing field because they're still being outgunned by Reliant because of the damage that was done when they were caught off guard. 
And it's just a great cat and mouse game with the uh, with the Reliant in the Nebula, where the Enterprise gets the edge and levels a massive blow against the Reliant and just totally disables them and tells Khan, we're coming aboard. Prepare to be boarded. Khan, who was lost, again, I think it's his son, Joaquin. I, I, I really do think that, that Joaquin was his son. Decides, nope, you, I'm going down, you're going down with me. And he triggers the Genesis device. Now, what's going to happen here is the Enterprise can't get away in time. They can't get away fast enough away from the Genesis curve, according to you know to David Marcus. He says, no, we, you know, we're going to get absorbed by this, and it's going to you know, start its Genesis matrix. It's going to kill us all. And that's what Khan wants. Spock, hearing that the main engines are offline, takes off from his seat and runs down to the uh, to engineering where Scotty is in bad shape. He's been exposed to some radiation and uh, uh, Bones is attending to him. Spock is trying to head into the uh, into the chamber where he's, he's going to try to fix the uh, mains where Bones says, no, you can't go in there. And, you know, you, you would flood the whole compartment. You'll kill yourself. You're not going to do it. I'm not going to let it. I'm not going to let it happen. And Spock uses the the, uh, the the Vulcan nerve pinch to knock Bones out. And he goes into the compartment. And what we're led to believe is he's like mixing this material by hand, exposed to all of this radiation, and he is able to put the mains back online just in time for them to go to warp speed and get out of there before the Genesis planet forms. And it would have been certain death for them. But in doing so, it sets up the big scene of the movie where Kirk and Spock say goodbye. And Spock has his big death scene. Now, when they showed that in the first cut of the film, to the big executives, they were, boy, the, the execs, I mean, they knew that Spock was going to be killed, but boy, the, the scene was so powerful. And I and I got to tell you, folks, when I saw it for the first time in the theater, very emotional. If it didn't bring a tear to your eye, you weren't a true trekker. Everybody in the theater was just, it was dead quiet. I mean, there have been rumors that Spock was going to be killed in this movie. That had leaked out. And then, and then when we thought we saw it in the beginning with the uh, Enterprise getting destroyed and it was a simulation and all that, we thought, oh, they fooled us. They fooled us. They're not really going to do it. And then so all throughout the movie, we kept wondering, no, I don't think they're going to do it. I don't think they're going to kill Spock. Because this movie's really good and there's going to be more. We all knew, sitting there, that this movie was so well done and so good because it got into what made Star Trek Star Trek. And Nicholas Meyer, for a guy who didn't know anything about Star Trek, did a heck of a job. He really did. But the powers that be wanted to put a little bit of hope into the film, so much to Nick Meyer's disgust, they added a scene. Well, Nicholas Meyer said, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. I mean, if you're going to add a scene to it, fine. You can do it on your own. I, I'm done. I made the movie I'm going to make. And so there's, uh, you know... In the movie, they uh, the bury Spock in outer space. You know, like like you would see in a war film where they're burying someone at sea. But uh, Paramount hires a guy to shoot some more footage, and the footage shows Spock's coffin, which was was they used a uh, 
a, a photon torpedo tube as his coffin. And it's lying on the uh, on the Genesis planet that is formed, this lush planet that is formed there that they can't believe. So, my God, you know, Kirk saying to, to Carol, have you seen anything like this? This is amazing. And so now all of a sudden we're all sitting in the theater going, oh, is it possible they're opening the door for, Kirk, for Spock to come back? Yeah. And, of course, as it turned out, Leonard Nimoy did want to come back. He not only wanted to come back as Spock, but he wanted to come back as a director. He wanted to be a part of the Star Trek franchise. Because as a result of this film, the franchise has been launched. That $12 million turned into $97 million after the first release. And of course, Paramount now is like, oh, we've got to have some more. We've got to figure this one out. <laughs> and Nicholas Meyer would be, be a part of writing a lot of the screenplays. Or coming up with storylines and stuff for the remaining Star Trek uh, films, with the exception of uh, Part Five. That one, that one, we need a show on all by ourselves. So I walked out of the theater, knowing that Star Trek was alive and well again, and we would see more. So it makes this film a very, very special film. And once again, I will say, if you want to know some more about the, the behind-the-scenes stuff, read Nicholas Meyer's book, uh, The View from the Bridge. And the sections that he that he devotes to Star Trek. One other thing I want to mention about this film is the music. Now we had seen Jerry Goldsmith produce that huge score, great, great score for the, the original motion picture. But they couldn't afford Jerry Goldsmith on this one. So Nicholas Meyer knew a young composer. I think, he, I, think I think they said he was 28 years old, and he composes an incredible film score for this. Because I was a little, I got to admit, I was a little surprised that we didn't hear the music that Jerry Goldsmith did in this motion picture. But James Horner, whose music would be used for this one and for part three, The Search for Spock, is brilliant. It's a great score, and it really just set the whole thing off. And for Trekkers and non-Trekkers alike, all of a sudden Star Trek was on the map. And we were going to see a franchise of films that you know, Paramount wanted to, to come up with a franchise that would somewhat rival what Lucas was doing with Star Wars. And I think they did a pretty good job of it. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. There is so much we could talk about this film, folks, that I have not talked about in this episode. I know we'll be revisiting this one again. And I know, you know, Mark and some of the gang are going to want to come back and talk about this one. So don't be surprised if down the road, we talk about Star Trek II again. The Wrath of Khan. If you haven't seen it, it's worth a look. A big, huge, huge thumbs up. And it saved the franchise. And, and I, I am one of those folks, I'm a big fan of Nicholas Meyer and his work. And he saved the franchise. Because I think uh, had he, uh, you know, had Paramount not done what they did and, and gone out and gotten, you know, a new director. And, and again, as much respect as I have for Gene Roddenberry, he was just too close to the project and really did harm some of the things that happened in Star Trek, the original motion picture. They did the right thing, bringing in a fresh set of eyes, fresh set of ideas, and it, uh, and it really paid off for him down the road. 
And out of that, we got The Next Generation, and we got all of the offshoots. And we've still got Star Trek going on. Star Trek, you know, the one right now that's streaming on Paramount Plus, Undiscovered Worlds. I can't wait for their next season. I wish they'd hurry up and get get the new episodes out. This film was historic, absolutely historic, and I love it. Just absolutely love this film. And it was so much fun to sit down and watch it again the other night. I'd forgotten how long it had been since I'd watched it. Again, like I've... I've said this about a, a bunch of the films I've talked about this season. I'm going to have to make a regular time where I sit down and watch this movie over and over again because it's, it's never a dull moment watching Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Okay, hey folks, I've gone long on this episode, but it was just so much fun, and I hope uh, if you're a fan of Star Trek, you enjoyed it as well. Thank you for su- your support this year and, and throughout the uh, near eight years that we've had. We've got a very special show coming up very soon. Our 400th anniversary, or I mean our 400th episode coming up, and then our 8th anniversary not too long after that. But for number 400, I'm going to tease you a little bit. i got a very, very special show in mind for you that I think you're really going to love. So for all of you Monster Kids out there, and, and soon-to-be Monster Kids, or future Monster Kids, thank you from those of us here at Monster Attack. We'll be back again next week with an all-new episode. Have a great week. Hi, this is Siri. I would never, never, ever listen to the Earth Station One podcast. Who the heck says howdy anyway? Why don't you listen to Chris Hardwick instead? I can get you his information. The Nerdist is everywhere anyway. Ha ha. That was a joke. The Earth Station One podcast. It's time to let your inner geek out to play. You can find them at www.earthstation1.com or up on iTunes, Stitcher Radio or wherever fine podcasts are found. Peace. And we're done. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.